Hey everyone, it's Clara and I'm back with another one of my science chats with one of my friends and scientists that I just really admire. Um, today I'm really quite excited because it's someone that I don't know as well as um, other people that I've interviewed so far and someone that I've really wanted to have a good chat with for a long time. Also, it's a field I know nothing about, which is... Uh, so that's kind of cool. Um, so today I'm chatting with Professor uh, Chris Jackson and uh, with that I might as well just uh, jump into it. So. Um, I'll head on over. Hello. Hey, Chris. Perfect timing. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Clara? I'm good, thank you, thank you. So, um, so for our audience, as if you need any introduction, can can you introduce yourself? Who are you, and what do you do? Yes. So my name is uh, Chris Jackson. I'm a geoscientist and I'm currently based at Imperial College in, in London. Fantastic. And so, what's that, a geo... What, what research do you do? What is your science? What is the core of it? For the, for the people that have no idea, like me, what do you do? Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm a geoscientist, so the, the kind of old-fashioned old word, which is slightly less trendy, was geologist. Though we're all arguing about which is the best term currently. But when you say geologist, it conjures up in people's minds an image of people who go and look at rocks. And to some degree, that's true, because to some degree, um, what we're interested in is the structure and evolution of the Earth. So that's what the uh, composition is and how the Earth has evolved over tens to hundreds of millions of years. And some of that is captured within the rocks that we see um, around us and also the rocks that are preserved beneath our feet. So, yeah, what I'm really excited about is trying to almost reconstruct landscapes in, in, uh, in, in, in the Earth's past. Um, because with that knowledge, we can understand how things like climate have changed and we can understand how things like uh, tectonics have occurred, so the way the Earth's crusty forms, uh, volcanoes. Um, so there's lots of interesting avenues to explore if you do kind of not only just look at rocks, but you also look at their chemistry and their physical properties as well. So that's, yeah, that's what kind of gets me, me going. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, yeah, I know I've made jokes about climbing on rock faces and stuff like that. And that's also why I was tripping up on my words, because uh, geoscientist, I wanted to say geologist. And I was like, is that correct? I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, but it, it's funny how language changes and evolves. Yeah. And it's interesting, the discussion that's going on around that, because geologist is kind of seen as a very old-fashioned word with a very old-fashioned image. And geoscientist maybe makes geosciences, which is a combination of physics, chemistry, maths, you know, it's a combination of all the other kind of classic physical sciences. And by having the term geoscience rather than geology, I think the ology bit is the study of, and it's Latin and it's confusing and posh, whereas geosciences is like, you know, everybody can understand the geo bit maybe, that is to do with the science of the earth, which is exactly what it is. That's a really good point, actually. I often, I mean, I'm a material scientist, but then you've got material engineering or maybe you've got metallurgy or maybe you've got material and science. And I go with material science. I don't know. I think that it sounds better to me for whatever reason. But um, it is funny how terms change. I, I was talking about um, quantum computing in, in the last chat as well and, and definitely how... Um, terms were changing there because there was certain baggage that came with some of those terms as well. Do you think that geology has that? Yeah. <laughs> oh. yeah, I'm, nod I'm nodding away here. I think so. I think, I think 
partly, you know, again, going back to this this mental image of a geologist, you probably think of a, a white man with a waterproof coat on on a windswept mountain with a hammer looking at a rock, right? So that's probably what you have in your head. And, 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 and that mental image doesn't do anything to draw in all types of people you'd want to participate in earth sciences. And it's probably not a, a hugely attractive image if you're trying to attack, attract young people into the field, field. So people who are making their choices about A-levels, GCSEs, university. So, you know, the, the words are very important in, in terms of the, yeah, the kind of public view, the broader, the broader societal view of what that discipline is about and, and also the people who are welcome in it. And, you know, thinking about what the discipline's about, if you say geology, hmm. oftentimes, most immediately people will be thinking about oil and gas and mining and yeah. rightly you know there are rightful concerns about their role in you know, environmental damage climate change things like that so again you have to be very careful about the words you're using because geology or geosciences or earth sciences are, is much broader than that right so okay. want to communicate that the breadth of things that happen in the earth sciences because then it's a fair representation of all the things that are going on and it's maybe then more attractive to to a broader range of people okay yeah no that's that's a really good point um i'm actually you can't see it but i'm wearing a sea shepherd t-shirt so yeah the, um i'm all for the ecology side of it and <laughs> saving the planet where we can um so what is it you're actually looking at when I, I read your tweets and I see that you've uh, shot off to this exciting place or I read you your conversations about abseiling down a volcano and things like that. It's, I mean, as a rock climber, I'm just like, I'm in the wrong field. I'm doing this wrong. It is. I mean, it's, so there's a really weird thing about what, what bits of my job involve. Okay, so in some ways... It's, it's what you described there, right? It's like going out in the mountains, it's mm -hmm. upsetting down volcanoes, it's being out in the Andes or the Pyrenees or the Alps and it's looking at rocks and it's, and it's, and it's, and it's, and it's looking at geology as most of us imagine it to be in the field. Um, and that can be quite exotic, of course. You know, but luckily through my job, I've traveled to some amazing places. But then on the flip side, I think another bit of work I do, which is subsurface geology, mm. that what that means is, I don't actually have to go to those places. So I can get image of five kilometers beneath the seabed offshore New Zealand on my laptop here in Norway, all right? And I yeah. can look at rocks that have been extracted from five kilometers beneath the seabed offshore New Zealand on my laptop here. So I can, I can, I can engage in geosciences and, and look at all these amazing structures and the changes in the rock types beneath our feet. Uh, way on the other side of the planet to do wow. it here so do you know I mean like geology is really odd do things at multiple scales you can use these different data sets you can look at places that are really far away so it's almost like astronomy in that respect yeah. you know you can look at the furthest point from you know your phone while you're sitting on the loo um you don't have to go anywhere to see these amazing things um, that's, that's funny actually yeah, yeah, as you were talking, I was reminded I saw a, a, a talk um, which was one of the Tigers in STEM talks and it was uh, someone looking at the surface of the, the geology, the surface of the moon, basically. And it was, and so, yeah, I mean, that's a little bit, oh, no, not even the surface of the moon, the surface of Mars. And obviously you can't fly there for the weekend. We're not quite there yet. 
Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we probably, you know, there's these things, um, I think this is true. You know, we basically know more about the geomorphology, so the shape and, you know, the physical shape of the of, of Mars than we do about the, the, the oceans, the seabed on, the, yeah. on our like kind of is like more unexplored in some ways in terms of remote sensing bits of our own planet than there is somewhere super far away, which just shows you how technology can advance for certain aims. In that case, to look at you know the geomorphology of or the shape of, of Mars rather than the shapes of the darkest corners of our own oceans. It's an interesting point, isn't it? It's almost like Mars is Earth undressed, but also um, you've got. I mean the water creates so many difficulties when it comes to different engineering challenges and you'd think that space that vacuum would be just as bad and i use vacuum all the time in my lab i do vacuum coating but actually things are a lot water is more challenging than vacuum i think <laughs> exactly yeah no i mean yeah there's this kind of corrosion there's pressure when you go deep under it there's you know, there's a bunch of reasons why it's hard. I mean, and also it's partly just asking the questions, like, you know, scientifically, why would we want to know that and who's going to pay for us to go and build something to go and find out about it, of course. Okay. And and that speaks to, you know, trends and sway within funding and, and what is considered yeah. important to know and, and where do we direct the, the money we have, the finite resources we have. That's... Uh... I think that's a big problem with science, isn't it? It's I, I, I've joked a few times on these um, sort of podcasts about sexy science, and I've said I don't do sexy science. In my field, that would be lithium batteries, whereas I don't. I'm doing superconductors or hardness coatings, and it does make a difference. Even in the same field, it makes a difference. It's much easier to get published in certain areas, and it's much easier to get the funding in certain areas do you find that that's the same i mean it sounds like it's a similar thing in your field yeah it is it is i mean i mean i've never been i've always been more strongly linked with industrial funding or overseas governmental funding rather than the uk okay. agencies but what i what i would what i have noticed there is historically maybe 20 years ago so when i was doing my phd it hurts to say that but a long time <laughs> no um you know, there was more funding available for things which were drawing on subsurface data. So the data I use, borehole data, this stuff we call seismic reflection data, which are these kind of CT scans of the earth. And they're very, very much industrial tools, typically used for the extraction of oil and gas. So you could get funded for projects which were like leveraging those. And now it's kind of harder to do that because there's rightly probably the UK, you know, the government agencies, the funding agencies are like, well, why should we fund this when we've got a shrinking resource ourselves? Why do the energy companies fund this? So, you know, we're, we're starting to have to ask different questions or at least ask different questions or the same questions with different types of data because, you know, there's, there's, there's more of a focus, and again, rightly so, perhaps, on things which are of more immediate societal benefit that the, the government essentially should be funding. You know, should the government be funding esoteric question about the offshore North Sea, it's harder to make the link between that and energy provision for the UK, which is an obvious reason we should want to know, of course. Um, but it might be easier to sell something around, um, you know, I don't know, like 
water quality or to do with, uh, you know, kind of um, atmospheric pollution in cities and things, which is probably more immediate to, 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 to the, the public. So I get it, you know, I get that there's shrinking ability to fund everything and therefore you have to look very hard at what you do fund and you have to then decide what public funds are going to be spent on versus industrial or private funds, of course. It's actually quite refreshing to hear someone um, acknowledge that there are limited funds and you can't fund everything. I mean, we'd we'd love to be able to, but quite often, um, I don't know. It always it always feels like people are angry when we say that we can't fund this or we can't fund that. But it, it, allocation of funding is really important. Yeah, and sometimes that you know you you can make a case that some things get funded that shouldn't be, or things get funded and they're not properly reported on. You know that reporting bit's really important. You know we paid a lot of money for this and decided that this was the best and or most important piece of science, and yet the reporting back and the actual impact of that science isn't made clear post award. Um, so I can see why there's agitation around that. Whereas oftentimes, at least my experience with the industrial funding and projects I've done. <laughs> there's no way of getting away with that <laughs> you know the reporting line is very clear and the time frame is very clear and you either you know help with this thing or you don't um and so there's there's yeah you know there's different different pressures with both of those systems that's fair so um so we, we've talked about sort of the wider scale of what it is but what is it that you're actually trying to look at what is it you're interested in what um why are you sort of doing CT scans of yeah. the rocks and, and what information does that give you? And, you know, why do you care? Oh, my goodness. This is always a hard question for me, because if I if I if I think help, but I don't, I just study lots of different things with lots of different types of data, be the, these CT scans, these seismic reflection data sets or actual field data. Um, so what are we doing? You know, things that are exciting me at the moment, we're doing, um, we've just finished like quite a lot of work on submarine landslides. So this is like when you have these giant landslides under the under underwater, and these giant submarine landslides can trigger tsunami, they can damage undersea power cables or internet cables laid on the seabed. And um, with these data, what we can do, these submarine landslides are enormous. So I'm talking like they're probably like tens of meters to hundreds of meters thick. Just, wow. And then 100 meters long, 100 kilometers long, and you know, 20 kilometers wide. So these are vast, vast volumes of, of material that fail catastrophically. And by that, I mean sort of in the course of a few, you know, minutes, and um, you just get this mass moving. So there's huge energy release and transfer. And so we've been looking with these data at um, where these submarine landslides happen. We're trying to look a little bit um, at uh, what allows them to move so far. Um, because there's lots of interesting physics about how these landslides move. Um, and with these data, we can sort of see inside the submarine landslide and we can see underneath them and we can really get a handle on their shape and size. And the shape and size are important when you're trying to look at, um, say, tsunami risk. So tidal wave, quote unquote, risk yeah. is, is correlated with the size of these things. Um, so that's super cool. Did some super cool stuff with... Um, basically volcanoes, so looking at ancient volcanoes. Um, so a lot of people who are volcanologists often look at active volcanoes, and rightly so, because they pose mm -hmm. a, you know, a geohazard to, to life. Um, 
And what we're excited about is looking at ancient volcanoes. So these are volcanoes which are now buried beneath our feet, but you can image them with these data. Wow. And if you look at these ancient volcanoes, again, you can get an, a handle on their shape and size. You can also get a sense as to their dynamics. And by that, I mean, how did these volcanoes grow? You know, did, did, did eruptions come out the top all the time? Did they occasionally have eruptions out the side? Because in active um, volcanic terrains, where the eruption happens is an important um, component of the geohazard risking. Okay. Oh. oh, sorry, I just, you just broke up for a moment there. <laughs> oh. Why am I struggling? Just lost you a minute. I don't, know, I don't know if you can hear me, but I have lost you a minute. Ah, there we go. No, not quite. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know whether it's my internet or not. Mm. How are we doing? Are we having any luck? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, sorry. Right. I've got you back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had any trouble with this, I don't know. What's going Sorry, and I don't know why. I've got bad internet here. Oh. Is it can you hear me? Oh, excuse me, sorry. Yeah, I could hear that. <laughs> Alright, you're back. Yeah, sorry, I don't know what's happened there. Okay. Uh, this is why it's easier to do it uh, pre-recorded rather than live. <laughs> oh, the internet is really... I can... Are you hearing me okay? Yeah, perfect, yeah. Just me then. I don't know what's going on. Let's blame uh let's blame Skype. I'll cut all this out, obviously. Sorry, right, okay. I think I think we're back. <laughs> I can start back at um when I was talking about the volcanoes. Yeah, that'd be good. That'd be ideal. Thanks. Sorry about that. No problem. Um yeah, so one other thing we get really excited about and I'm working on at the moment is um using these subsurface data, so these seismic reflection data to look at ancient volcanoes. So um a lot of Volcanologists work on active volcanoes because they pose a geohazard to the life of the people who live around them. But by going to look at these ancient volcanoes, we can understand how modern volcanoes work. Um, so one really cool thing is you can look at these volcanoes, which are a couple of hundreds of million years old, buried four kilometers beneath our feet, which are now extinct. But we can see how they um, built up by numerous lava flows and things like that. And um, we can also look underneath volcanoes using these data, so these ancient volcanoes, which is very hard to do with active modern volcanoes. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, there's lots of cool things, which just a general blue skies, earth science sort of questions. But then some of the work we're doing is applied as well. You know, like what is the risk of these submarine landslides? How can we use our understanding of ancient volcano growth to understand how modern active volcanoes might behave in the future? So there's there's a fun overlap there, really. 
terms of some of the work we're doing. I think um, it's funny when I was chatting with uh, uh, Andrew Princep, he he said that he was looking at certain materials just for the sake of looking at them and because it was good science and it was interesting. But, you know, actually, when we dove into it, everything, every bit of information we gather, every little bit of understanding helps us understand or apply models to other things and to other systems. And so, like you say, looking at inactive volcanoes allows us to understand how they came to be how they worked and maybe even how they stopped yeah exactly like why did they stop you know what was what happened to the tectonic configuration right so the plate the earth's plates where were they where were things being melted to generate magma that then fed these volcanoes we can start to piece together some of those things in these now inactive systems and because like i said it's really hard to try and work that out oftentimes in in active places um, but I think Andrew's right, you know, sometimes we just need to look at things because we're interested in them. And then serendipitously, we may stumble upon things which are important. Or at least, we, I, you know, more philosophically than that, sometimes we just need to do things that are fun. So that when we're doing things which are less fun, <laughs> have energy to do some of those things. You know what I mean? Like we sometimes need to play yeah. No, I, I know exactly what you mean with that. I mean, there's some experiments that I've done just because they were interesting and they weren't what I was getting paid to do and they weren't, you know, paying the bills as such, but it was it was interesting. And, and sometimes you stumble into discoveries. Um, uh, I'm thinking, you know, things like graphene were discovered just because people were playing around and seeing what they could do with a piece of tape and some carbon, really. Yeah. No, exactly. I think I think that I think that's yeah, I think we need to kind of encourage some of that natural well not encourage it, but we need to like not be afraid of that natural inquiry we have, you know, when faced with a new bit of data or and I think sometimes we, we need to make space for that. And I you know, I'm I'm biased because my whole career more or less has been around that. I've just been fortunate enough to get somebody to fund it on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> successfully so, successfully so. Um no, I, I, being able to discover and look at things and inquire, I think this is how we do. We'll, we'll come up with those accidental discoveries. I, I mentioned graphene, but then, you know, my whole field of superconductors were discovered by accident. And so you've, you've got to look at things. You've got to be creative. I think um, over the last weekend, we there was uh, some Twitter threads going on from someone that was talking about how you've got to have a particular... Um, mindset to be a scientist and how you should look at this and you should look at that and it was it was a very structured way of doing science that they were promoting and a lot of us were saying no because I, I like to promote creativity in science I think that if we really want to make out their discoveries we've just got to try and see what happens and sometimes we need facilitators right we need people who you know, not the, I don't know, I don't even know how you'd measure cleverness, but you need people who have a skill of bringing people together and spotting opportunities to bring people together to, to solve a problem which historically has been difficult to solve. And, and that's not a natural innate thing in people who are quote unquote clever. Um, so it's all to do with, you know, the research environment, the research culture, who gets to do research. It goes back to all these things, you know, me and you care about, which is, you know, Quality, diversity, inclusion in science because you need to have that. I don't really like the term, but diversity of thought, which often comes from different life experiences, that allows you to then bring together 
different people and do things in different ways. So this kind of cookie cutter nonsense, I'll be polite, I won't swear, about, you know, but Einstein was like this, and therefore how do we bottle Einstein and inject Einstein into people? Because it's just garbage. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I completely, completely agree. Um, I, I want people to think outside the box more. The trouble is that current science and the way that papers are structured and the way that they're promoted and the way that we allocate funding it doesn't does it still allow for this freedom of thought this freedom of I think it's, scientific it's, integrity I think it's improving a little bit i mean i i mean there's more conversations going on around the inequity right there's more conversations going on about the fallacy of metrics in, in even in my academic lifetime of the last 16 years or so so there seems to be a, a creeping, increasing awareness of of how what we've done before may not be optimal for what we want to do now and in the future. Um, so, yeah, I think I don't think we're there yet, but I, I I do feel encouraged by some of what I see and hear. Equally, I feel discouraged by some of what I see. <laughs> but like, yeah. I think on balance, I've heard more positive noises and positive approaches and different approaches, and 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 you know at least partly you know because all of this is just like Twitter traffic right amongst the bottom feeders like me. And um, but what you really want is people in power, people who give out money and jobs and promotions to be listening to this. That's yeah. I I've been thinking a lot on sort of different things on how we actually make real impactful change I've, I've, I've said before that i feel like there's more people that are centrist or left and yet the power still seems to still be on the right and i'm not saying that science is sort of split into left and right although it, it certainly feels that way but it seems that even though there's more people that i think are more centrist or left i i it's something about the way we're going about activism and trying to improve things means that the power is still held for amongst less people. Yeah, I think so. But even in, even in people who are politically left, there's still a conservatism imposed by the academic structure, right? So you see people who, you know, vote left and have left consciousness and left societal proclamations on their social media feeds and whatnot. Um, but then they still are conditioned with an academic system which maybe encourages progressive thinking and you know a tenacity for new stuff scientifically let's say in terms of the stuff we do clara but just talking about science because it's what i do but it maybe doesn't reward that it, it, it maybe maybe that you then measure that progressive thinking and that progressive science in a very non-liberal very conservative way you know we have a conservative set of metrics which we use to assess yeah. this thing so maybe it's a case of simply allowing people's rad political politically radical thinking to kind of translate with them into a position of power where they're making decisions and and, and you know because those people believe in equity in terms of politics and and you know society yeah why would they not just bring that into the workplace and, and, and fight for the same things there as well? It's, you know, it's just something that frustrates me that oftentimes when you talk to people in power in, you know, in higher education, it's almost like the institutions, this 
headless monster. Like you ask, why is something like this? And it's like, well, it's just like this. And I'm like, well, no, where's the committee or the person who wrote the piece of paper which says we have to do things like this? We can't do things like that. Yeah. It's kind of lost to the annals of time that nobody seems to actually know <laughs> where this thing came from. And nobody wants to take responsibility because it's too hard to kind of fix this thing. And I just don't believe it because we can fix far harder things like the every day in terms of people and science and stuff. So don't tell me we can't fix these things. I, I just don't believe it. But I, whether, you to, whether you want to change it or not is a different thing. Mm -hmm. But don't tell me you can't change it. <laughs> yeah, I was I was talking about um, fusion energy recently, and I said, like, I mean, we're not going to have results from uh, the ITER fusion generator until sort of 2030 and 2040. And if we actually start harnessing fusion energy, we're talking, you know, 2040, 2050, if it works. And we're putting all this money and time and effort into it in case it works and yet we're not willing to do that with our researchers with our scientists with our culture and that had actually cost less money than this fusion generator you know and you think about it as well i mean the science that's produced is only going to be as good and be a product of the scientists and the environment in which they work so it's not a decoupled endeavor of funding science and not scientists or you know or funding or funding the appropriate culture within which the appropriate environment within which good science and the best science can take place. You know, I think that that's probably a, you know, there's probably a t-shirt or a mouse mat in, in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I get really annoyed by this idea that, you know, science isn't political. I mean, just trying to stay in science for me has been a fight and I'm sure it's been the same for you. And, you said you said how you're a, a bottom feeder, you're a small fry. I'd say that you're actually quite, you know, you're you're definitely a, a bigger fish these days. If you're not a shark, I mean, you've you've managed <laughs> to get into plenty. Shark maybe sounds a little bit more aggressive than I meant, but you've you've managed to elevate, and certainly you're a, a well-known scientist, and you're you're you've risen to eminence where you can take part in the Royal Institution Christmas lectures, and you've had TV show and stuff. Do you still think that, do you still consider yourself small fish or are you rising? I don't know. I, I kind of feel like I don't have any power upwards. So, you know, like the people who pay the bills and run universities, of which I will probably, which I will, you heard it here first, I'll never do that. Um, you know, I think trying to influence those things, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to engage in it and I think I am, but I think I'm more kind of, inspired by you know what i can do for people who are kind of coming behind me if, if you will so the people who are yes who are who are either earlier career or in even more minoritized groups and if you know what i and you know people i hang out with are trying to do and talk about will will help them either in themselves or strategically at a higher level above us will give them, you know, make those people higher up more aware that there are these other people that they need to care for and nurture and, and bring through. And I'm happy to, you know, but I, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. And you never often, sometimes you never really know unless somebody tells you, like occasionally, you know, somebody from senior management, either where I work or somewhere else says, oh yeah, you know, you made us think a bit more about that or we're going to do this. And, and I think, 
And that's good. It's good to know that that is there is some positive change in there. But it's something I've said before, you know, if you're going to become a professor or you're going to get to any position and you're going to get to any institution, there's an increasing level of comfort and privilege which comes with that. So when you're on that journey, it's worth thinking about what you're going to do when you get there or when you're on your way through those various steps. Like, why do you want to do, why do you want to become a professor at Imperial College? Like, why do you want to become a, why do you want to, why do you want tenure? Why do you want to get, you know, a fellowship? But like, every time you're going onto one of those steps, it's useful to think about what you want to do with it. Or is it simply that you just want more comfort and you want more security, which is fine. It's absolutely fine. But there is an opportunity with increasing levels of permanence, comfort, privilege, if you will, to use it for something else which doesn't immediately benefit you, if you see what I mean. And you can argue that nothing's truly altruistic, right? Because even with me, like, absenting into volcanoes and giving the Christmas lectures and inspiring people and, and doing various things for the black community, that's great. But it clearly makes me feel good to do that. You know, it makes me feel good when people say, this inspired this class of kids I, you know, who, who saw you. I think you know, I, I, it makes me want to do it more. It makes me want to spend more time on those activities, which becomes challenging, doesn't it? Because then you end up spending time not on science, which is what I was trained to do. I wasn't trained to upsell into volcanoes or inspire people. Um, so you end up in this really curious space where, yeah, you can, you can, you can be drawn away from the thing which you originally were trained to do and you originally felt passionate about. And now I feel increasingly passionate about the outreach engagement stuff as well. But yeah, I'm sort of hesitating because it is quite a difficult kind of subject, really, I think, to, to think and talk about is you feel like you're missing out a bit sometimes on what your friends have just got their heads down doing <laughs> and you're talking to classes of kids about stuff and <laughs> being racially abused and having to like deal with that. <laughs> um, yeah which we will talk about but yeah i i i mean i i've said that i've kind of concentrated a lot on the outreach and trying to improve equity and speaking out and stuff the last few years and the result is that i haven't got the papers out i haven't been writing the, the proposals and and so it means that i will fall out of potentially fall out of science because i haven't knuckled down and done the science but at the same time it's important that we do this and I take the same uh, view as you, that it's not for me that I'm doing this, it's for the future generations to make sure that it's better when people come along. And yeah, this, and the same thing, I I feel good about what I do and I like it when people recognise that, but that isn't why we do it. No, but you have to be really careful there. You know, there was somebody, I think it was Caroline was talking about this on Twitter earlier on today, and she was sort of saying, you know, this idea of, of, of leaving science is seen as a failure or leaving academia, I should say. And this notion that like, almost like people pretending that more science doesn't go on outside of academia when it patent, when it clearly does, right? So when you, you know, you kind of corrected yourself there, like leaving science, and indeed you may leave science, but equally you could leave academia and still be within science. And, and I know I've spoken to Andrew Pinsep about this as well. I think, I think, there's, I think there's a really important Kind of awareness we should be we should be kind of oh, we should be making people increasingly aware of, the, of of that fact and and your your societal contribution as a scientist is not limited to it what happens within the academy 
Now it can happen in, in, in numerous ways. And in fact, if you go, you know what, I don't want to be in science anymore. I want to go and become a school teacher. Or I want to, you know, I want to go and do something which is to do with policy, which means I'm not going to be doing the hardcore science, but I'm going to be talking about the importance of science to either kids or to, to governments. That's still a really important bit of the, the, of the science machine. It's not just the lab space and, and the clever thinking and the big papers, is it? It's, it's, it's it, it's 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 all part of the same thing in my mind. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, I don't know. I, the the thing is that I'd like to stay within academia, but then you've you've got to jump through certain hoops in order to be able to do that. And I don't know. My of... future's unclear. At the... I, I've just had a grant not back, so you know. <laughs> Not the best time. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. Um, yeah, that was that was going to pay my wage for four years, and that's not there now. So it's like, oh, okay. Um, but uh, I'm also thinking about what you were talking about um, in terms of being able to make change. So we we say that the change happens from the top, and it's people that they stand by these principles or these ways of engaging, and so that's how things change. But I think we can't underestimate, even though it might take a little bit longer, we can't underestimate the importance of doing outreach and showing other people that they can be scientists in the future and some of them will rise to power. It might take a long time, but this is why it is so important to get as many people involved in science that want to be scientists now. And this is why role models like yourself, people are seeing you on TV, they're seeing you on Twitter and and that is going to have such a change. It might take longer, but that's a huge step change in science, I'd say. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, like I say, it's important to engage in it. I think the hard bit is to do both. I think it's hard to do the kind of talks, the, you know, whatever media stuff you get a chance to do going into schools. And to do that as well as like, okay, now let's try and influence research assessment policy at Imperial College, let's say, you know, or let's go and look at the race equality charter mark and, and where we are with regards to race, in, uh, you know, inclusion in, in, in this world top 10 university, right? They're, they're very different mental spaces and they both take a lot of time and, you know, let's be honest, expertise to get right because actually to do outreach and engagement to a bunch of like four-year-olds is, is as hard, I would say, in terms of the nuts and bolts and the mechanics of it as it is trying to convince maybe a provost to change their view on something. And I think, the, you know, the mistake, if anything, I've made is probably in the last five years, maybe trying to do both of those things. And you kind of feel maybe you're not doing them both as well as you could if you focused on, you know, because you're trying to focus on those two things or one of those, and then you've got like your research and your research group, and then you've got your friends and then you've got your family. So there's all these things to be doing. And, and uh, they all obviously inspire you and give you energy in various ways that you do kind of think sometimes, oh my goodness, I can't do all of these things because it's like they're dead hard and I'm not doing them very well. And these people over here hate me because I'm doing that thing over there. <laughs> yeah, being able to sort of look at things and say, hey, I need a break or I say no to certain things or just being like, okay, I've not had much progress with that, but I've made progress and I've I've started for someone else. You know, you're building blocks for other people to be able to build on what you've done. Nothing yeah. that you do is a failure. Nothing is inconsequential. And I think I think you're right as well. You, you can take away stuff, can't you? That 
you know, you might do something, you might not be the best of it, you might not succeed, but in that experience, you did learn something about some process or about a person or about yourself, you know, so there's, there's, there's something to, there's something positive to have been taken away from, from the encounter or the, or the effort you made. Um, so always trying to kind of get something positive out of some horrendously crap experience. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we've we've um, I've been dragged on Twitter, and I mean you've you've taken a lot more of that. <laughs> um, it, it's difficult to see the positive in that, but yeah, I know for me. It is, but you know, even I mean, yeah, and I, you know, I can't speak for you, but for myself, like you know, I screw these people. It doesn't, you know, I've got a fairly, I've got a pretty thick skin, and I know, I know it's not personal. I know where I want to get to. I know what I want to do. But in those conversations, you are educating a lot of people who are on the sidelines, and it's a bit voyeuristic in that respect. But there's a lot of people seeing those interactions and going, "Oh my God, this is worse than I thought." Or, oh my, you know, like, and help so yeah there is something positive going on it's just not immediately happening for you in that moment but it's but you are inspiring and positively moving people in a, in in what to you is a more passive way you just don't see it happening but you know in a week's time or a month's time somebody might come back and go and i've certainly learned a huge amount you know Carl, from seeing you you know on social media engaging in topics which five years ago i knew nothing about and so you know, my, my, the breadth of my understanding of the value of, you know, intersectionality, let's just say, is hugely, is hugely grown in the last five years. And, and that's in no small part to the engagement of people like you. So, you, you, you know, you are, you are doing that. You are, it's just, it's just crap for you <laughs> what is going on. Um, but yeah. I'd, well... It's interesting, actually, something that I think about a lot this in the UK at the moment. There's a lot of discussions about transphobia and stuff, as with other topics as well. Um, but I wish that there were more people that were able to be reasonable, because I feel like if you take an extreme view on either side, then those people in the middle that you can, you know, that you just said, the people that you can win over, that you can open their eyes and show them how bad it is. Mm -hmm. As long as we, we've got to... Uh, Sometimes you want to scream and shout, but if you can act in a more reasonable way in a thoughtful, measured manner, then you do win more people over. And also, people up above are more likely to ask you questions when it comes to trying to change their views, maybe. That's true, but sometimes you just really fucking cross. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, sometimes you're just like, it's just... And I got a load of messages after some of the stuff recently where people go, oh my God, you were so, you handled it so well, you were so polite, constructive, how did you manage to be so even-handed? And I was just like, and for the most part, I, I think I am. Most of the part, I think I was like, okay, these people, it's not personal. I'm just going to try and expose their racism by actually just being very calm and drawing them out and not engaging in a shouting match. And other times I just want to say, oh, piss off. You're just, you're, you know, like, I'm just done with this. Um, and then you get accused of being the angry minority person, right? And and then, you know, straight-laced white middle-class people are like, oh, my God, there's this angry black man shouting about racism on telly or on social media, and it's too terrifying to engage because these black people seem so cross about everything. Um, and so you end up having to kind of conduct yourself in a way which sort of allows them to feel comfortable, which is what you say, to kind of enter the conversation and have their views change. 
whereas it's deeply uncomfortable for the people who are having shit poured all over them, right? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like yeah. The, the kind of learning experience and, and sanitize it, whereas. Whereas, whereas if they just look at social media on a thread, they'd be like, okay, this is what racism is, and, and these are the words that people use, and this is why it's really painful and horrible. <laughs> yeah, I keep on coming back to the, sometimes I pat people on the back for doing the bare minimum because, you know, <laughs> because I want to encourage them to do more. There is some, there is, you know, and I do that as well, and I think there's some value in that because I think, you know, you know slowly, slowly, you have to kind of nudge people along. Um, because they are, and there's nerves around it, right? I wouldn't want to go into anything in, in terms of, you know, I have limited understanding of the challenges facing trans people, or, you know, and and so I wouldn't feel well equipped, particularly to carry an argument with somebody who was transphobic. Although I would, based on what my emotional feeling is about, you know, trans rights, right? But I, but I don't know, I don't have a forensic knowledge of of, of the law and. And you know some of the medical challenges. You know I don't I I don't have that. So if you if somebody patted me on the back and said, "Oh, thanks, Chris, for doing that bare minimum," I would probably feel a bit relieved I didn't completely screw it up because <laughs> it is kind of hard to use. Oh. You're not used to. I I'll, um yeah I don't uh, yeah that probably sounded a bit harsh. There's people that like you that if I, if we're saying well done to you, it's because you're going about it in the right manner and you might not have an in-depth knowledge of the actual topic, but you'll engage in the conversation in the right way. I'm thinking about those people that are just, they're doing it for the wrong reasons, you know, the people that are doing it for the press or the publicity. Yeah, yeah, there are, there are people who see it as a performative exercise in sort of point scoring. Um, and yeah, for me, it's not that because it's just like, I'd just like to know a bit more about the people I live with and interact with and my, you know, my three daughters, you know, how might I need to support them in the future? You know, if they're not like the, the you know, this, the peak on the distribution, right? Almost. Um, so it's, it, yeah, it's, it's going to be a, an interesting time. I'm, I'm going to have to go in about three minutes. So I've got to, I was supposed to make a, I've got to make a call to somebody, but, oh. um, no worries. Uh, well, very quickly then, can we, um, I mean, you're hosting, you're, you're one of the hosts of the uh, uh, Royal Institute Christmas Lectures this year. And when you said that you were the first black person to do that, I, I mean, I haven't been following them for years, but how, how, how is that the case? Well, I said it like when it was first announced, you know, racism has a huge amount to play or has a huge has a huge amount to answer for in terms of why historically there has not been a black Christmas lecturer before. And I'd say again, you know, there's clearly been, and there clearly are black people qualified to give a Royal Institution Christmas lecture. And, you know, they've not been chosen. Have they even been on shortlist? Is it that they had no visibility? Is it that the system which would give somebody the opportunity to be the Christmas lecturer has been using metrics which kind of excluded them. Um, so people got a chance to give the Christmas lectures because they were measured in X dimension rather than Y, as in, you know, they weren't a good, you know, were they a good communicator and, and did they tell an interesting story? Well, no, it's because they published two papers in Nature or something. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there, 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 are, there are issues with, with how we've, historically measured people and then there may have just been more nefarious things like we just don't want these people to be able to talk mm. um, and, and so 
that's why I think it's happened. And that and it's sad then when you know people are saying, "Oh, you're on it because you're black," and it's like, no, it's because of all the accolades that you've got in your academic career. I mean, you're well established in your field. You you have you're you know you're there for the right purposes. I'm definitely there for the right purposes. Absolutely. I mean. You know, and you've got to be honest, though. I mean, if there's a confluence of he's there for the right reasons and we're in this time where, you know, if we've got all these equally qualified candidates, we're going to choose the black person because there's an opportunity to have another discussion about science and scientists. And, I'm, and I've said this before, I think that's important. And that's the same as if you were looking at um, affirmative action, right? If you've got these equally qualified candidates, you'll choose the candidate who allows you to make steps towards um be it gender equality or be it um you know race or ethnic you know ethnic equality and and so there's an opportunity there so yeah i do feel qualified and i'm going to try and prove that in the lectures john absolutely 100 percent sure you will i might even watch a christmas lecture it's years since i've done that i should do that <laughs> watch <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I, I don't want to keep you, uh, like I said, you've got a meeting to get to. So thank you so much for chatting and just being so open and just having a really good conversation. It's been it's been really interesting. It's been really fun chatting. Hopefully as for you too. Yeah, thank you so much, Claire. It's been an absolute pleasure to finally talk to you. And uh, yeah, yeah, be, uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you again, maybe next year, post-COVID, face-to-face. That'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Yeah, maybe even in yeah, maybe even in my home city of Manchester, possibly. Exactly. So yeah, <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Right, I better I better run to this call. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. What a fantastic conversation! I could took this for hours. To be honest, there was a lot more that we could have gone on about. Um, but also. A very, very busy person. Uh, that modesty of just bottom freedom is just not true. This is a busy person. They, he works hard. He works really hard and he's made a lot of impact. And I didn't even get to talk about how um, he's had impact on uh, LGBTI plus uh, equality at, you know, at Imperial. Like, this is someone that's actually actively engaging and trying to learn more about other causes, not just theirs. And I think that's really important. It's the same for me. I didn't always know about a lot of the institutional racism and I've had to educate myself. I've had to learn. And especially over the last six months, there's been a, a huge learning curve there. And I, I, I feel like I was already a fairly clued up person, but you know, becoming even more clued up is really more important. Um, so yeah, um, what a grand, great opportunity to chat with a fantastic role model and I'm immensely grateful for Chris's time. Um, so thank you very much for watching that. I, uh, have another, uh, recording booked for next week. So I'm going to try and release these every few weeks. The actual sort of science talks I'm going to do less of frequently. Um, I want to concentrate on good rather than quantity so i'm uh, just releasing them as and when they come out and excitingly i'll be releasing these podcasts soon as well so uh, there you go and um, i might have already done it in fact and um, by the time i release this so thanks so much please do like subscribe share it really helps a small youtube channel like mine and until next time take care and uh, bye bye